0: So when I saw the title of this sermon series, So You Think You've Got Problems, I could relate. <laughs> I've been going through cancer treatment, and I'm, I'm sporting a new head of hair, and it's a thrill, truly, to be part of It's really a joy to be kind of sitting here before you, I'm monitoring my energy so I can preach a few times today, and using a stool, so forgive that. Many of you have been part of supporting our family, and I am so grateful. And I'm grateful, too, to be able to bring you the word that right in the midst of whatever we're going through, God wants to do his work, that God wants to work his will in our lives. And that's what we see in this story today of Joseph. We've looked at some of the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, last week Jacob, and today we come to Joseph. Did you know that they're telling the story of God's great pursuit down at the Paramount Theater? The story of Joseph and his amazing technicolor dream coat. So if you don't get enough today, you can check it out at the Paramount. Today's scripture is high drama. It's worthy of a musical. Here's the sketch. In God's great pursuit, we've seen God at work. Now we see God moving to gather a people. He's he's created, Jacob, remember, was called Israel. He's created the community of Israel. And now he's going to show through, actually, the challenge of Jacob having a favorite son, how he can work in the midst of that. Joseph is the one who gets the cool coat. His brothers want to kill him, but they sell him into slavery instead. He's falsely accused of rape. He's thrown into prison, sprung from prison to interpret Pharaoh's dream. He forecasts an upcoming famine, and he's made prime minister of Egypt. His brothers come to get food during the famine. He fully forgives and reconciles them, though it's painful for him, and he keeps excusing himself to go cry in private. Joseph cries more than any other character in Scripture. He settles the whole extended family in Egypt. He blesses them with food, land, his love. And then after his father Jacob dies, the brothers fear that Joseph will take revenge. But Joseph says to his brothers, am I in the place of God? You intended it for evil, but God intended it for good. So we're going to take a look at three scenes, if you will, from that giant 13 chapters of Genesis story. We're going to look at how God worked right in the middle of the family tension and conflict. How God shaped Joseph's character and became his constant companion. And how Joseph became a catalyst for forgiveness and reconciliation. So here's the setup for scene one envy, extreme envy, envy leading to murderous hatred, probably fueled by hurt and then anger. If you think of kind of a spectrum of envy that starts with just a natural tendency to compare ourselves to others, hey, cool shoes, did you get those at the Heart and Home Center? Or, hey, look at all these great heads of hair out there. <laughs> and i really, any of these colors would do. I'd just like to have a little more. Sometimes that, that little thought just starts to take root in our hearts. And it's no longer just a minor comparison. It's something we're dwelling on, something we're even gossiping about. Envy can take root so easily. Our neighbors have greener grass than we do, all the time, throughout the whole year. Why? Because it's fake. (laughs) They've got turf. We have this pathetic little grass. Doesn't it feel like that sometimes? Like somebody else's life just looks so sparklingly green. So beautiful. They don't have the kind of issues we have in our household. This is why God had to forbid covetousness in the 10 Commandments. Just don't do it. Resist that temptation. But Joseph's brothers can't help it. I think all all three, the brothers, the dad, and Joseph himself contribute to this this dynamic because Joseph's brothers wanted to kill him. Why? Because they lived in a family where they were competing for attention and losing all the time. Envy is the thief of joy, and this family was filled with envy. There's shared blame. So dad, the brothers, Jacob himself. I think it all started, as we heard last week, when Jacob wanted to marry Rachel. And remember what Laban, the father-in-law, did? He slipped Leah in on the wedding night. And then Jacob worked another seven years to marry Rachel. So after he marries Rachel, he's already had a lot of sons with Leah and a few mistresses and a few daughters. Uh, There's kind of a large family already. But when Jacob and Rachel have a son, Joseph. We've got a severe case of favoritism. Dad has a favorite wife and a favorite son. Jacob loved Joseph more than any of his other children. And this became apparent when Joseph was 17 and his dad took him out and bought him a Ferrari. No, a coat of many colors. (laughs) And he treated him like a prince. And Joseph plays right into it. He plays the part of the spoiled child. Once when he has a dream, a dream that his entire family would bow down to him, does he keep it to himself? No. He flaunts it. Hey, you want to hear my dream? Uh, He just pours fuel on the fire of conflict in their household. So the brothers resent Joseph. They hate him. They can't think of a kind word to say to him or about him. I can almost imagine them out on the hillside with their sheep Telling stories about the hateful thing Joseph has done Has that ever happened in our life today? You kind of get a little snippet of something that bugs you about someone And you just kind of keep talking about it and going after it That's what the brothers do they're laughing at his arrogance. They're laughing at his coat. They see him come, coming from a long way off, and they say, oh, here comes that obnoxious brat. Dad probably sent him to check on us. And they simply snap. They want to kill him. <laughs> I found that in the paper last week. That's my image of the boys. They're like, they're like a front line. Their envy has taken root. They're bitter. Does envy have a foothold in your life? Are you at risk that it will become a toxic covetousness? Here's the thing about God He's not measuring any one of us against our siblings, not our earthly siblings, not our spiritual siblings. In God's sight, we're all firstborn, we all get the coat of many colors the heavenly Ferrari, the heavenly inheritance, the presence of God in our life. God gave his only son in order that we could all be children of a king. But that's not what the brothers experience. They decide they're going to kill Joseph, and the oldest brother argues, no, let's just throw him down into the cistern, into the well, and thinking, I'll come back later and get him out. They agree, okay, they throw him down in the cistern, and eventually uh, some folks come along, he gets sold into slavery, ends up in Egypt, that scene too, we're gonna get to that in a minute. But here's the crisis. Joseph is thrown into this cistern. He's abandoned, if you will, by his family. Doesn't life sometimes feel like this kind of crisis? Kind of like we were walking along, and we stepped into Alice in Wonderland's rabbit hole, and we're kind of going down. That's what a cancer diagnosis felt like to me. Like being thrown into a pit, and it's a long way down. Then sold into the slavery of a long course of treatment, battling for life, and health, and hope, right in the midst of that. Can one trust God in the midst of such a crisis? Joseph evidently did. Joseph didn't play the part of a victim. Somehow, he's thrown into that cistern, he's sold into slavery, he lands in Egypt, he's sold to one of Pharaoh's officials named Potiphar, and we're going to see an amazing thing that happens in Joseph's life, and I think it happens in our life too. The harder life gets, the more real God can become. You know, most cultures around the world experience God in the poverty of their life. They know their full dependence on God's mercy to be at work in their lives. I think we're sort of protected from that in our culture. Most times we're not at the end of our rope, in the bottom of a pit. But God can meet us there. So this is what happens with Joseph. Notice. What's been said about him so far is that he's dad's favorite. And I think in this second scene, he kind of experiences himself as being loved not only by his dad, but by the God of the universe. So Joseph sold to Potiphar, and Potiphar notices that, the scripture says, the Lord was with Joseph, and the Lord gave Joseph success in everything he did. Now, if you had someone working for you who experienced success in everything he did, what would you probably do? Give him more responsibility, right? Because everything Joseph touches seems to be turning to gold. So Potiphar just lays it on. Hey, do this, take hold of this. And it's not just a kind of a downtown office building that Joseph works in. It's right there on kind of the big Potiphar's estate, Potiphar's mansion. It's, it's a home office, if you will. And we see that the plot thickens in Genesis 39. Potiphar's wife notices that Joseph was well built and handsome. (laughs) You know, he's right there at the house all the time. And the master's wife actually takes notice of Joseph and says, come to bed with me. Right in the midst of these circumstances, who will Joseph be? This temptation of kind of a woman off the cover of People Magazine inviting him. Eventually, Joseph has to respond and he says, My master to the wife, he says, My master has withheld nothing from me except you. How could I do such a wicked thing and sin against God? So Joseph sees his life not only as sinning against these choices, not only as sinning against Potiphar, but sinning against God. He has a loyalty to God that's deep. He has been stripped of his coat but not stripped of his character. His relationship with God is real. It's not just a religious routine. He walks away from Potiphar's wife and she keeps after him until one time they're alone in the house and he refuses again and and he runs away and she kind of grabs his cloak and she holds it up as evidence, accusing him of rape. Joseph, falsely accused, is thrown into prison. And this is the second time. He loses all of his status and his position. He's humiliated. What would your character be in the midst of this temptation? Would you give in or would you run away? If it was held before you again and again. Are you walking closely enough with God that you could say no? What would your character be in the midst of the loss of your status and identity? Who are we? When we don't have the life we built for ourselves, when we don't have the anticipated future that we've worked for. Who are we when our retirement is gone because the economy turns upside down? Our pain is not what defines us, but it shapes us and transforms us. I got this image of a cypress tree, you know, the way they're blown in the wind. It the pain, the, the wind, the circumstances, they shape us. They transform us into who God wants us to be. So what happens to Joseph in prison? He's put in charge again. He's noticed as a man of God. And in that position, we see that Joseph has kind of become Mr. Sensitive. Remember how he didn't even notice his brothers hated him? Well, now that he's in prison, he notices folks And he notices two guys who've been sent by the pharaoh into prison, and that they're sad. And he asks them, hey, what's going on? Why so sad this morning? And the two respond this way. The cupbearer, or kind of the wine steward for the pharaoh, describes his dream, and the baker describes his dream, and Joseph interprets the dream. He says, God will help me to interpret. He tells the wine steward, you're going to be lifted up and put back in your position. He tells the baker, you know, you're going to be hung, and this is all going to happen within three days. (laughs) Okay, so uh, guess who was hoping for which one to be true? (laughs) So Pharaoh has this big birthday bash, and evidently some of the entertainment includes calling the wine steward back to his position and hanging the baker. Things happen just as Joseph had said. Once back in his position, the wine steward forgets all about Joseph. Two more years go by until Pharaoh is troubled by a dream that no one can interpret. And the wine steward kind of remembers, oh, there was this young Hebrew guy back in prison. What was his name? And the scripture actually says that they called for Joseph, and then after a quick shave and a change of clothes, Joseph comes from prison and appears before Pharaoh. Standing before Pharaoh, he's asked if he can interpret the de- dream, and he says, I cannot, but God will give Pharaoh the answer he desires. So Joseph speaks the interpretation for God as God's guidance for Pharaoh, that there would be seven years of abundant harvest and seven years of famine. Wow. Pharaoh hears this, and what does he notice about Joseph? He says, can we find anyone like this man? One in whom is the Spirit of God. This is that same guy who, when he was 17, was totally obnoxious. That's what folks noticed about him. Now what Pharaoh notices is this is a man of God. God has taken these circumstances of Joseph's life and used them. He's been present to Joseph in a huge way. God is, Joseph isn't just another handsome guy or kid who grew up as his father's favorite. He's a man in whom the very spirit of God dwells. So Pharaoh calls for a robe and a ring to be put on Joseph, saying, I hereby put you in charge of the whole land of Egypt. He's rising to power again. The years of plenty follow, and then the, ha- the famine strikes. Hunger spreads from Egypt to Canaan, where Jacob and all those other sons, and now their wives and their children live. And now we come to the third scene. So Joseph has risen to power in Egypt, and in this third scene, we see God coaching through Joseph a catalyst for the transformation, if you will, of the world. Jacob realizes that his family is in famine, and he sends 10 of his sons. Now remember, one is supposedly died. That's Joseph. The second son of Rachel was Benjamin. Jacob keeps Benjamin at home and sends the ten to Egypt to get food. When the ten arrived in Egypt, they bow down before who? Joseph! Exactly! They've got their faces to the ground. It's just like Joseph predicted, interpreted the dream. There it is. This moment comes to pass where they do bow down, and Joseph recognizes them. He recognizes the moment, and he can't take it. He, he leaves to go and weep. And the story continues to unfold. He sends the brothers back. He asks them to bring Benjamin back to him. Can you imagine what Jacob heard, thought when he heard that this guy in Egypt wanted to see Benjamin? He said, no, I'm not sending Benjamin. I've already lost Joseph. I'm, you guys just stay here. We'll starve. But eventually, they get so hungry that Jacob says, okay, go. Take Benjamin. And that's when Joseph receives all of them. He sets up this amazing luncheon. And remember, they still don't know who Joseph is. So he lines them all up by age, slightly suspicious that this Egyptian official would know their ages. And then he gives, I think, a quintuple portion of food, five times as much food as everyone else, to Benjamin, his biological brother. The brothers are astounded at all of this. And eventually Joseph reveals through many tears, in fact it says he cried so loud that the whole household could hear it. He reveals who he is. And then those brothers have to own up. They've gotta go back to Jacob and tell him, you know, it's Joseph in Egypt. And that's what they do. They eventually kind of own up to the whole thing and Joseph calls for the whole family to be brought back to Egypt. He sets them up as shepherds, and in fact they become the shepherds of all of Egypt. He sets them up on the finest land, and in in fact they are kind of protected. This is how God provides for the covenant family to become the foundation of the chosen people. Joseph builds this bridge by saying, you intended to harm me, but God intended it for good, to accomplish what is now being done. So then, don't be afraid. And he reassures them, he speaks kindly to them. Even after Jacob dies, Joseph chooses reconciliation. He's no longer doing it, if he ever was, to please his dad, his earthly father. He's becoming the man that God will use to redeem his people, Israel. This is God's story of redemption. It's an unfathomable mystery of God working his will through circumstances of hatred and suffering, of brothers turned against one another being used as the very foundation upon which God builds an eternal plan. And this is God's invitation to us, to live lives fully surrendered to God's perspective, to God's ultimate objectives for the world. In Jesus, God built this ultimate bridge of reconciliation. He loves and connects us, us self-centered, spoiled children, to his purposes. He brings himself, his very presence, right in the midst of our lives, in the midst of tension in our family. Not, not just small tension like, hey, that's mine, or I borrowed something without, without asking, or I lost that $20,000 you lent me, or sorry I married your girlfriend. <laughs> right in the midst of all our circumstances, God invites us not just to reconciliation with one another, but to be a part of God's reconciliation of the world right in the middle of our family dysfunction when it seems like there's no way out, Joseph's story invites us to be a part of God's story, of Jesus' story. I'd like to close with a story that I heard about a family who really walked with God and they had a testimony really of what God was doing. They were very involved with Young Life. They were a family of hope, if you will. And they were having a family reunion, and their daughter, Kim Evanger Rainey, uh, you might have heard this story. It's the story of a family on the east side. They were having this reunion down in Palm Springs, and she and her husband went out on a bike ride, and she got hit by a truck and really never woke up. What's God doing in the middle of a crisis like that? Can God be at work in the midst of loss and tragedy when the marriage isn't working out? I think the testimony of the Evanger family demonstrates what it means to trust that God is at work in the midst of all circumstances. Kim's brother David has built part of their, they have a family foundation that is called Consider. And this Consider has been um, designed to reach out and extend his sister's life. He has established these consider concerts. There's one coming to Moore Theater in November to invite young adults to engage their minds and hearts, their energy in a deeper and fuller way. To live a life that makes decisions with an eternal perspective. I think that's what we learn from Joseph. That's what Joseph learned. That his life wasn't just about him. It was about the very presence of God, the spirit of God at work in him and through him. So David of has the hope that through this foundation called Consider, there would be a spark to the community to engage our world with compassion and love, to provide the oppressed with a chance to consider Jesus. What would our lives stand for if we didn't have a couple more decades to live them? What can we learn from Joseph about living close to God right in the midst of our tough circumstances. Please pray with me. Mighty God, as we hold that image of those football boys in our mind, we know that we can be like that, that we can be hard-hearted, that we can allow a root of bitterness to be in our hearts and to divide us from you. And God, whatever circumstances you have put us in or will put us in, I ask that we would give, you would give us eyes to see you at work. That in the times when it feels like we're falling down into a pit, we would know that your spirit is with us. That our eyes would become more clear. That we would know that you're committed to a relationship with us, not a blueprint for our lives. Lord, when we trip and stumble and fall, we, I ask that we would find you. That in the rawness of life, you would meet us. And our God, I thank you that you have intended a divine purpose for each one of us. I ask that we might stumble into that purpose, that we would consider what you have for us, that we would become all that you designed us to be. And our God, we thank you for this story of Joseph, who did not allow the tension with his brothers to have victory, but instead he demonstrated, as we see in Jesus, reconciling with you reconciling the world to yourself. We thank you for that invitation. Lord, give us your yes, we ask, in the power of your Holy Spirit. Amen.